Okay. Oh, I did get it. All right. Well, welcome to the service this morning. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. And you want to know something? We are coming very close to the end of Ephesians. We've been studying Ephesians for a long time, many, many months, and we're almost at the end. This week, two more weeks, and then we're done. Uh, in September, we're going to start a fairly brief series uh, where we remember together who we are as the Erickson Covenant Church and what it means to be part of this body. Um, so we're going to talk about our purpose together, which is to help people find and follow Jesus. We're going to talk about our vision for this coming year to grow in maturity and commitment to mission. And I'm really looking forward to that. And plus, uh, Tom is going to be preaching way more in the fall, and I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> I've been preaching a lot. Um, but for the next few weeks, we're finishing up our series on Ephesians. And uh, everybody is going to need their little booklets today. So we've been using these booklets during the study. Um, if you're visiting or you're new and you don't have one, just put up your hand. Bill and Rosvita are the ushers, and they are circulating with booklets for you. Don't be shy about that. We want to make sure you have it so you can follow along. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're only here today, you're welcome to just take those booklets home. If you're going to be here for a few weeks, what we've been doing is just dropping them in the mail uh, folders by the front door so that they're here every week for us, and you can do that too. Well, today we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5, verse 21 to 6, verse 9. It's the second to last page in your booklet. And I just want us to remember that the first half of the letter to the Ephesians is written to paint a worldview for us, like we saw in the video. It's locating us as believers in the middle of the cosmic story that God is telling. God is in the midst of reconciling all things to himself through Christ. And because we're part of his body, the church, we are part of that plan. We're part of the reconciling. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been moving into the, the second half of the letter where we're looking at more and more uh, concrete instructions for our daily life together as believers. And so today, we're going to move into instructions for very specific relationships with other people. Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, verse 9, and I'm going to read this for us. And while I'm reading, uh, try to identify. You can just circle them or underline them, whatever you want. Try to identify the key relationships that Paul is addressing in this text, okay? And consider the power dynamics that are going to be present in those. So here we go. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor, 
without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord, and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. Okay. What do we notice about relationships? I notice in the very first line the relationship between believer and believer. Right? It says, be subject to one another. And so that's the framing for the whole thing, any two believers. I also notice all the way through the relationship between Christ and the church. That's a relationship that we've been learning a lot about in the past few weeks, the way that those two are so intimately connected to one another. And then through this passage, there are three sets of relationships that are very specific. There's the husband and wife, the parent, specifically the father and the child, and then the master and the slave. I think it's interesting to note that any man who is hearing this letter be read could actually have played all three of those top roles, right? Like all three, the husband, the father, the master. Any man could easily be all of those. Um, And that person is always the person who carried the power in that relationship. The other three in the Greco-Roman world where this is written, they were always under men. Women had no legal rights at all. They were basically considered objects that were owned by men and not really persons in their own right. I'm not advocating that. I'm just telling you how it was. She was first her father's and then her husband's to do with what they wanted. And women were not, they weren't educated. They weren't even really given religious instruction, which, of course, makes it so striking that Jesus had women among his close friends and followers when he was teaching. Children weren't much better off than that. 
fathers, I mean, I can't even imagine this. I didn't know it till I read it today. Fathers were free to beat, starve, and even kill their children in the surrounding culture if they wanted to. And most men would have very little to do with their children at all until maybe their sons came of age and started learning a trade from them. And for a religious teacher to talk to a child would just be considered a waste of their really valuable time. So again, super striking how often Jesus is is seen with children, bringing children into the mix as he's teaching. It's incredible. And then slavery. Slavery was a little bit different in the Greco-Roman world than the way that we understand it today because Anyone could sell themselves into slavery if they needed money for their family or to pay off a debt. It wasn't a predetermined state based on race or social class. And they could, while they were a slave, they could earn money and then eventually buy their own freedom. And so sometimes, sometimes people used slavery as a way to gain Roman citizenship because it had more advantages. So they would sell themselves into slavery, then work to buy back their freedom. And then once you were freed, you took on the citizenship of your former master. But while they were a slave, they really were a slave. Like you couldn't sell yourself into slavery and then three months down the road uh, change your mind. And certainly the men in this culture had the freedom to sell women and children into slavery if they wanted to, and they didn't have any say over that. And so these three relationships form the basis of the social fabric, the household. And I want us to try to, what I want us to do is try to picture where this letter to the Ephesians was being read. So it's the early church, and they're just starting to form churches, and it would not have been a building like this. It would have been a house church, so a gathering of maybe 30 or 40 people, maybe in someone's kitchen or living room area. You'll notice that this is not an ancient uh, house church. <laughs> this is more modern day, but, we, but it gives you the idea. So they're meeting for worship and study and prayer in a home, and the people who come are all Christians. They certainly would know one another from the gathering. Um, it might be that there are whole households who come together that includes husbands and wives and children and fathers and masters and slaves. But it also might be that people come on their own because only one member of the household has become a believer. And here in the house church, unlike any, anywhere else, um, everyone is together. Women and children are not separated out from the men. People who own slaves and people who are slaves are seated next to one another. And they've been sitting here listening to the letter be read, and they've heard most of the letter, and now they come to this part, which is sometimes called the household codes. Now, I didn't know this till this week, but apparently writing household codes was really common, and lots of Paul's contemporaries would make and publish lists of codes for the ways to behave in a house. It was kind of like the suggestions or the list that Good Housekeeping would put out for, like, how to be a good wife, right? The very first thing is, have dinner ready. (laughs) All right. 
yeah, again, I'm not advocating for this. I'm just telling you what it was like. Um, Except for one thing. Household codes, generally speaking, were addressed, they were addressed exclusively to men. I mean, of course they were, because men had all the power and they had the only power. They were the only ones who could enforce anything in their households. And so the social guidelines were written to help them know what was expected of them and what they could expect or enforce in their dealings with other members of their household. So in the letter to the Ephesians, by the very first word of verse 22, this household code is completely shocking. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Paul addresses the wives. He talks to the women in the room. It's a striking honor and an elevation of their position from property to person that he would even talk to them. And he talks to them first. People would be so taken aback by that. Now, I'm not, like, I just want to be careful because I'm not pretending that this letter is, like, you know, a revolutionary call for equality because I don't think it is. It's written in the context of a completely patriarchal society. There's no question that this writing assumes that the men have and will continue to have the power in the household. But I don't, think, I don't think we can pretend that the letter is affirming the social construct either. It says, wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Well, the way that women are subject to the Lord, the way that anyone is subject to the Lord, is as a free and autonomous person who submits their lives to his authority. They willingly choose submission to the Lord like we do. And that is nothing like marriage relationships in this day where she would be given and taken by her father and her husband without her consent. And so Paul is assuming underneath the fabric, he doesn't say it explicitly, but he's assuming that women are whole and autonomous people, free to make their own decisions, free, in fact, in Christ, although this would be shocking, to choose not to be subject to her husband. In Christ, she is free not to be. And in Christ, she is free to choose submission out of reverence for Christ. Um, There's an author, Bill Webb, and he uses this scale to help us understand why the implications of Paul's teaching about women are so, they're so hard for us to interpret correctly, and I really like this. So the scale moves from like a restrictive position to to a more progressive one, generally. And you can place biblical teaching in the middle because it stays consistent, like the words stay consistent um, over time. Now, we tend to read biblical teaching from our current social, like from the position of our current social norms. And so when we live in 2017, when women have, at least on paper, all the same rights as men have, this teaching that we read in Ephesians appears quite regressive. 
because it's moving backwards from our current social norm on the scale. But if we read the teaching in light of the Greco-Roman social norms, it was an incredibly progressive movement, even freeing to the people who were reading it. And we need to remember to pay attention to the direction that the scripture is moving our social norms. We have to remember to ask, what was the teaching doing for the people who were hearing it? In which direction did it encourage them to move? And here, at least, then it becomes clear that Paul is encouraging movement toward justice, toward equality, toward liberation, toward an understanding of women as full people, sisters in the faith, loved by Jesus, who were choosing to follow him. Paul goes on to speak to the husbands, and this is the longest section in the household code. And he uses two images to describe the way he wants husbands to treat their wives, and neither one of them is about property. Love your wives, he says, just as Christ loved the church. It would be a great exercise sometime, I should have maybe done it today, to have a group spend time together listing the ways that Christ loved the church before they look at this passage, (laughs) to just get that down on paper and explore it. Paul lists some. He says he gave himself up for her. He made her holy. He presented her in splendor. Husbands are supposed to give themselves up for their wives and in a variety of ways make her holy, make her worthy of honor. That is so different than owning property. And then the second image that Paul uses is so interesting. Husbands are to love their wives as they do their own bodies. And so for a group of men in the first century who were not familiar with the idea of treasuring or caring for their wives, this might have, it might have resonated or carried some more weight. Love her the way you love your own body, the way you love yourself. Take care of her the way you take care of yourself. No one hates their own body. And she's part of you, like the church is part of Christ. In fact, this whole passage, through the whole passage, everything is connected to the model of Christ's relationship with the church. Let's look at this list together. You can follow with me in your booklets. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight for us some of the times that Paul says it's, it's like the church's relationship with Christ. So, in verse 22, he says, as you are to the Lord. In verse 23, just as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ. Verse 25, just as Christ loved the church. Verse 29, just as Christ does for the church. Then we skip down to uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. In the Lord, verse 4, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, verse 5, as you obey Christ, verse 6, as slaves of Christ, and then verse 7, as to the Lord. It's almost every verse through the whole thing. Everything they're being told to do is in the model of Christ. 
what are the factors that tend to determine our social relationships? I mean, what shapes the way that you treat your spouse? Or the way that you raise your children? Or the way that you treat your subordinates at work or people who are serving you? What shapes that? The law? What you're allowed to do? A code of conduct, maybe, if it's at work, there's particular ways you have to act. Our own social norms, like what everybody else does. Best practices, the modeling, which is basically just a way of saying whatever you saw your parents do is probably what you're doing. Sometimes it's even just emotions, how we feel today. If we feel angry or or fearful or infatuated, that's how we treat someone. Those are some of the normal ones. But in this letter, Paul is helping us know how to live now that we're following Jesus. And he says the only thing that should ever shape your social relationships, your relationship with your spouse, is the relationship that Jesus has with the church. The behavior and the heart of Jesus shapes how a man should love his wife take care of her, honor her, make her holy, because that's what Jesus does for the church. And women should be subject to their husbands because the church is subject to Christ, because Jesus himself actually was a model of submission. In fact, the whole passage needs to be read in light of verse 21, which is the very first verse. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to means to put under. One another is this inclusive phrase that that includes everybody in that room, every other person who's a believer. And out of reverence for Christ is then the ultimate motivation for behavior. You don't do it because you're in a good mood that day. You don't do it because somebody made you happy or pleased with their behavior. You don't even do it because it's good for them or good for you. You do it because you are showing reverence to Christ. This is the foundation for all relationships between any two believers, that they are subject to one another, that they put themselves under one another, and they do it out of reverence for Christ himself. And so it helps me to add that in in every specific set of instructions. I like, to, I like to read it. Wives, out of reverence for Christ, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Husbands, out of reverence for Christ, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. It's a mark of our faithfulness to Jesus that we treat our spouses the way he treated the church. Okay. I just want to say that um, I know that that is not enough about marriages, right? We're just scratching the surface. Um, I am not married, so (laughs) uh, I'm sure there's way more that I don't even know. But next week, Tom is going to bring a full message um, about marriage as a special topic in in this text and series. And so for today, I'm going to keep going. Uh, In 6 verse 1, Paul moves on to speak to children. And again, remember that children had no rights in this society. None. They were the property of their parents. They could do whatever they wanted with them. So 
It's shocking for them to be included as recipients of the letter. It's totally bizarre for Paul to speak to them. Children, out of reverence for Christ, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And again, like when he speaks to the wives, so much of what he's doing is lost on us because of our own cultural norms. But to a group that wasn't used to be spoken to, being spoken to, wasn't even used to being like to being there. They're supposed to be outside the room all the time. This is honoring. It's affirming them as people and giving them a way to participate. And then he says, Fathers, out of reverence for Christ, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't mess with them. Don't antagonize them. Treat them like people. And here's the part we miss. Fathers would have had nothing to do with their children normally. But Paul is telling them to get involved in their lives. Right? He's saying, you be the one who disciplines them. You be the one who teaches them the way of the Lord. That would have been unheard of. An incredible call for fathers to consider the well-being of their children and to take responsibility for passing on their own faith. Verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5, says, Slaves, out of reverence for Christ, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. In singleness of heart, as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I think that does two things. In my mind, it does two things. First of all, it elevates the work that a slave is doing. Don't do something well just because you're going to get seen and get credit for it. Do it because you're doing it for Christ. And second, it gives them a way when they don't have very many choices. They don't have a lot of power. It gives them a way to conceptualize, understand themselves as being bound to Jesus rather than only to their master. It allows them to like categorize their slavery as slavery to Christ. A type of slavery that is good, that is honorable, and that is ultimately going to be rewarded. In verse 9, he says, Masters, out of reverence to Christ, do the same to them. What do you think that means? Do the same to them. The closest context is to render service with enthusiasm. So I wonder if Paul is asking the masters to render service to their slaves. It would be in keeping with the being subject to one another. It might be the more general, uh, whatever good we do in verse 8. So do good to your slaves. Stop threatening them. Treat them well. Because both of you, he says, have the same master in heaven. And with him, there's no partiality. It seems important to Paul to remind the masters that everyone is under Christ. And he is the ultimate master, and he does not differentiate between us based on social order. He says it twice, right? Once to the slaves when he says, whatever good we do, 
we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And then he says it to the masters. With him, there's no partiality. So he's stressing the fact that the master-slave dichotomy is a social construct, and it's not going to exist when we stand in front of God. I kind of think no matter what we say about this, the power dynamics in these social codes are hard for us to swallow. But if people took them seriously, it would have dramatically altered the fabric of the household. For those in authority, the husband, father, master, it was a call to actively undermine the structure that favors you, that supports and gives you power, and replace power with sacrificial love. And then for those under authority, the wives, the children, the slaves, It was a call to submit honestly and fully. And so then give up the real power that you have in Christ to run or to fake it or to do the bare minimum in your life. The text exhorts everyone to model all relationships after Christ. So... That's the scripture for today. Here's the thing, you guys. I want you to know that when I was a member of a congregation, I had very high ideals for pastors. Um, I always wanted the pastor to talk about social issues in real time, and I was disappointed if they uh, if they soft pedaled a message. And I, you know, I really had high ideals. And so now I find myself teaching. Um, a passage about slavery, of all things, a week after Charlottesville. Teaching a passage about slavery 24 hours after this anti-Islam and anti-immigration rally in Vancouver. At a time in history when men and women who support the subjugation of one race over another are gaining shocking amounts of influence in the public sphere. And so, what should a pastor say on a day like today? And what I wish I had found in these household codes was a clarion call for all believers to emancipate their slaves and end the practice of slavery among them once and for all. And instead, I found this call for slaves to obey their earthly masters. And even though I think I've done an okay job of helping us see that as a way to follow Jesus, I'm afraid for us. I'm afraid that we might mistakenly think that this means the gospel affirms the institution of slavery. I'm afraid that we might think that God's gospel includes within it the idea that one race or ethnic group should have more power than another. And it does not. The story of God's people is formed in the exodus from Egypt. There's a man whose name is Israel. He has 12 sons. And he moves to Egypt to survive a famine. And the family ends up staying there for 400 years. But by the time they've been there for 70 years, The family is so big 
that the pharaoh in Egypt is worried that the family is going to rise up and overtake the Egyptians. And so, and so he forces the whole family into slavery, and they spend the next 400 years enslaved. And God intervenes dramatically through Moses, you can read this story in the book of Exodus, to rescue that people out of slavery, and he makes a covenant with them to be his own people. They'll be his people, and he will be their God. And I tell you that because God was very specific with his own people about how they were supposed to treat foreigners and slaves, or aliens, he called it, who lived among them. In Exodus 23, verse 9, he says, You shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. He's telling them, you know what it's like to be the foreigner, and you will treat foreigners among you differently, way better than they treated you. There were practices in place in the law to provide for aliens. Like in Leviticus 23, when he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the aliens. I am the Lord your God. And so the way that they treated foreigners among them was inextricably tied to the fact that they were God's people. It was a mark of being God's people that they treated foreigners well. Leviticus and Numbers both charged the Israelites to have one common law that was the same for citizens and for aliens. You couldn't have one set of rules or one set of rights or standards for citizens and another for foreigners. Deuteronomy 1.16 speaks specifically to judges who were going to hear the legal arguments about this. And it says, I charged your judges at the time, give the members of your community a fair hearing and judge rightly between one person and another, whether citizen or resident alien. There absolutely could not be a system that favored one set of people over another. The number of times that Israel, as a people, is sent into exile or that God allows them to be beaten in battle or taken captive. And every time that happens, it's because they have forgotten who God is. They've forgotten that he rescued them from slavery. And it's often because they were treating the foreigners among them poorly, enslaving them against the will of God. In Isaiah 58, God is speaking through a prophet to his people who are being called back from exile. And he says, day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose to bow down the head like a bulrush? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? No, he says, this is the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thong of the yoke, 
to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Our religious practices matter way less to God than how we treat our workers. In Luke 4, Jesus himself quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he's introducing his ministry to the religious leaders of the time. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to release captives, to set the oppressed free. In Galatians, another one of Paul's letters, Paul tells us explicitly that everyone is the same under God. He says there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Any time any one of us is tempted to make an argument that one group is better or more worthy than another, we have to call that the lie that it is. We have to call that evil. We have to recognize that in following God, in following Jesus, we come under a new social order. One that is marked by adoption and brotherhood rather than slavery and oppression. In fact, the letter that we're studying, Ephesians, was written and delivered in part because Paul was requesting that a slave be set free. There's this uh, slave named Onesimus who has come to him, and it's hard to know why. Perhaps he was coming to get Paul's help with his master. Maybe he was bringing a gift. Um, Anyway, he's there. But his master, Philemon, is a Christian. And while Onesimus is with Paul in prison, he becomes a believer too. And Paul is so taken with this man, he loves him so much, that he calls him my own heart. He calls himself his father. And he wants him to be able to stay and help with the ministry. And so he writes, so Paul writes a letter to Philemon, the master, and asks him, to release his slave. He's really clear. I'm, he says, I'm bold enough to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. He wants Onesimus to be released, but he sends the slave back to his owner, saying, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. And here's the thing. Philemon, the master, is a member of the Colossian church. And so when Paul writes the letter to Philemon, he also, of course, writes a letter to the whole congregation that's going to be there. And Ephesians is kind of a more generalized version of the letter to the Colossians. And that letter is written to be carried, like we've said, to all of the house churches on, along the way, from the prison where Paul is out to Philemon's place and the Colossian church. And all three of those letters get sent, most likely with Paul's uh, servant Silas, and 
Onesimus, and those two men make this journey, Silas is going to return the slave to his master. And so everywhere this letter was read, everywhere Ephesians was read, the believers who are gathered are hearing the words in the presence of a slave whose freedom Paul is requesting from his owner. He might be reading the letter to them. And that's the whole reason he's there. It's because Paul is asking for his freedom. The call to that slave owner is to lay down his power, to give up ownership of this person and consider him a brother in Christ, a free man, equal in all ways to himself. I think that since the civil rights movement, it's unlikely that we're going to hear an explicit call to return people to slavery. But we are going to hear other things. We are going to hear about the threat that white culture is being eroded or lost. We are going to hear about the need to make sure that we can control our own destiny. We are going to be asked to be afraid of people, to believe that there are people out there who are trying to steal our freedom from us. We are going to hear that a movement like Black Lives Matter puts us at risk somehow. We are going to hear that Sharia law might overtake Canada if we keep letting Muslims in. We are going to hear that immigrants are stealing our jobs and ruining our economy. We have to know how to recognize evil and be willing to call it by its name. Even when it's familiar to us, even when it's convincing, even when, and maybe especially when, we benefit from its message. We need to be wary, extremely suspicious of any message that invites us to refuse rights and help to another person for our own benefit. At this time in history, the church, we need to be sure of our call to bring freedom, to resist injustice, to stand up for the rights and dignity and holiness of each and every person as a created and loved child of God. Full stop. There are thousands of Haitians crossing the border into Quebec right now. Do you know about this? Most of them have been established in American cities for years, but now that government is threatening to deport them. And so they're taking taxis and airport shuttles to this dirt road that's just an informal, unmarked border crossing. And they're walking across the border into Canada where they're being arrested, and that's the goal. They're trying to get arrested because once they get arrested, they become part of the Canadian immigration system and get out of the American one. And that seems unfair, doesn't it? And it is most certainly illegal. 
But thousands, literally thousands of people, so many that they're housing them in Olympic Stadium because they don't fit anywhere else. All the facilities are overrun. Thousands of people are now resident aliens among us in Canada. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the scripture tells you to bring those people into your homes. It tells you to leave food for them in your field when you bring in the harvest. To give them the same legal rights that you enjoy. To love them and treat them well. Because the people of God were once also aliens and slaves. And so as we gather here this morning, I am really aware that it has been a long, long time since any of us in this room were slaves. Or were oppressed. Or were subject to injustice. Most of us can't even imagine that being true. And maybe that's too bad, you know. Maybe we have been in positions of power for so long that our hearts have forgotten how to empathize with those who are oppressed. We've forgotten what it's like to feel powerless, to feel afraid, to feel forgotten or voiceless, to have your land stolen or your children removed from your home and have no way to fight that. There's nothing you can do. We have to remember We have to learn. We have to listen to the stories of the people who are living that reality. Listen long and quietly, without objection and without defense. And we have to trust them that they are telling the truth. And then we have to treat them like brothers and sisters. We have to stand up for them. We have to stand against any system that contributes to their oppression, even if it means that we personally suffer loss. What the scripture today teaches us is that every relationship, in every interaction, we are to follow the example of Jesus. And Jesus was always on the side of the rejected, of the forgotten, of the excluded. He did not resist his own arrest. He gave up his own rights, his own power, in order to purchase ultimate freedom for his body, the church, for us. And that's what we have to do. Whether we are wives or husbands, whether we are children or parents, whether we are slaves or masters, or free women and men in Canada living in a safe and sheltered valley, watching from a distance while philosophies of hate and intolerance are shouted at protests, watching while people of color are systematically singled out for additional airport screenings, watching First Nations people be blamed for the effects of trauma that our ancestors inflicted on them, watching. Well, Jesus didn't watch. And if we are his body, if we are going to participate in the reconciliation of all things to God through Christ, we cannot watch either. Would you stand and receive a blessing this morning?
people of God, go forth from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill your high calling as servants and witnesses of Jesus Christ. And now may the risen Christ go with you, beside you to befriend you, above you to watch over you, within you to empower you, and in front of you to show you the way. Amen.